0: Wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Exodus 21, 33 through 22, 6. When a man opens a pit, or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead beast shall be his. When one man's ox butts another so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and share its price, and the dead beast also they shall share. Or if it is known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox, and the dead beast shall be his. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If a thief is found, breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall repay double. If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best in his own field and in his own vineyard. If fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that the stacked grain or the standing grain or the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall, shall make full restitution. Exodus 22, 21 through 27. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall be widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. And then finally, Matthew five seventeen through 18. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. The word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. Thank you, Matt and Elizabeth, for being a a blessing to Mallory and me and to the church family. And uh, I guess it was about 10 years ago now, when uh, somebody passed along a book to me, a uh, New York Times bestseller called The Year of Living Biblically, uh, written by a modern-day journalist who tried to live out uh, the Old Testament literally in, in a modern city, was it Manhattan or something, and while it's an entertaining read, I mean, there's an element, element of it that's uh, really mocking the kind of thing we just read. I mean, you can picture it, can't you? I mean, somebody saying something to the effect of, yeah, you you Christians, I mean, you claim to, you know, be relevant and that your Bible, you say, speaks to you. And, you know, I happen to open to Exodus chapter 21, and I read this, when you buy a Hebrew slave. Or I go down a few more lines. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall go out as the male slaves do. You say something like that. Say, what relevance does this possibly have to us Not only are you Christians really backwards, but quite frankly, I want nothing to do with it. And so the question for us, and and quite frankly, I've seen too many pastors do this, what they'll say is, you know, that is a little bit weird. Uh, The things that we just read. Uh, Let's just cast it off to the side. We're a little bit embarrassed by that. And let's just pretend it's not there because what we have is the great teachings of Jesus about turning the other cheek and loving everybody. Uh, Let's just chuck it to the side. But I ask you with that last reading, say, is that an option for those who really want to follow Jesus? Listen again what he says. Do not think, Jesus says, I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And he says, not even one crossing of the T or the dotting of the I, not one will disappear from the law, but in fact, I fulfilled it. So Jesus doesn't come and say, you know what, now that I'm here, that Exodus 21 to 23 bit and some other parts, you know, just pretend it's not there, chuck it aside, and, uh, you know, don't bring it up, because we we need to come across best to non-believers. No, that's not what he says. He says that law fills a purpose. It's part of God's holy word, and I actually came not to get rid of it, but to fulfill it. And as I hope, as we unpack this today, that as we see what these chapters are really about, become relevant for the church and actually will fling us back, a kind of boomerang of flinging us back to the person of Jesus. So to begin, by way of preface comments, I think we do well to differentiate between what we could call principles of the law and particulars of the law. Uh, that the legal scholars among us would call this the apodictic laws versus the casuistry laws. That is the all-time fundamental things that don't change according to time, much like the Ten Commandments. That the Ten Commandments are you shall not. It comes across, say, this is good for God's people in all times, in all places, verse what we call the covenant code, what we're studying today, which is what we call case law. If this, then that. When this happens, then do this. You see, it's a case law. It's an application of the apodictic timeless law. So let's practice a few, uh, what I mean. So turn back again uh, what Elizabeth read there. Exodus 21 from verse 33. When a man opens a pit, or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration... He shall give money to its owner, and the dead beast shall be his. You can say, now, what are the particulars of that law? The particulars of that law are oxen and donkeys and pits. I doubt today any of you say, hopefully not. You're going to go home and have to dig a pit to try to find some water. You say, that's a particular. But what do we do with that? Some would say, well, this is just totally irrelevant for the church. Nobody here is dealing with oxen and pits and donkeys. It's out. Or we can say, no, there's the heart of God behind it. Look out for your neighbor. Take care of your neighbor's stuff. Don't be negligent. So can you see God's law? Always, there's the case laws, which vary from time to place, but the broad principles come across to the church today as they did to Israel say what about a few others say someone would say to me you know I've been here you know, I've, I've been here two and a half years and I've not heard one sermon from Pastor Shaw about why the women in church shouldn't have braided hair I mean why, why, how neglectful I know he has 1 Timothy 2 in his Bible why not more against braids well I'd say well there's a principle there the principle is how men and women behave with one another in church and in the home the particular in that culture was braided hair say how about one more When we close the service, I usually say, like the end of 2 Corinthians, greet each other with a holy kiss. No, I don't do that. We don't greet each other with a holy kiss. Some would say, well, the Bible says to greet each other with a holy kiss. Why don't you do that? Say, I do think we do want to greet each other. That That's the point. Say, the church is a family. We're to greet each other. But in our time and our place, greeting each other looks different from that. And if, you know, lo and behold, you're in France in a church, I think they probably would kiss each other on the cheek after the service. So the principle of the law in that case, the principle of God's word is to be send a greeting and be warm to other people in the assembly, and the method by which you greet depends on the time and the place. This is the difference, again, between God's timeless principles and the case law that we apply in our time and in our place. And if we now turn again to Exodus 21 to 23, I hope we can see that the broad principles in play are very relevant for our church. So firstly god's law reveals who he is or we could say god's law reveals his will have you noticed that this law unlike any other law codes all you have great minds who make law codes you know the code of julian or something in the roman law or you know the, the founding fathers you know setting up the architects of our lands They're very good you've got human minds coming together let's do the best kind of human thing we do so we can all get along not this law Say, look again at 20 and verse 22, where our section starts. And the Lord said to Moses, or something even in 21 and verse 1. All right, now these are the rules you shall set before them. Say, this is God to Moses, that this is law from God down to the people. That it's not a human convention, but it's revealing the heart. It's from the Lord, and that's precisely what we need. The last thing we need, really, is other people telling us what to do, that it's a law just like any other laws, but we need something outside the the system, right, to not just affirm us in our sinfulness, but something outside the system to see what is really true, so God's law comes from him, and in so doing, it reveals his will and his character. So a question I get a, a lot is, suppose it makes sense, we face big decisions in life, how do I know the will of God? Say the most obvious answer to that, I hope, from any clergyman or any member of our church is that God has spoken and revealed his will in his word, that he's spoken plainly in his word. And as we as God's people put ourselves under the word and are reading the word daily by aid of the Holy Spirit, that God will make himself known to us and oftentimes even at the great questions of life, the great impasses, the great practical matters, that as we read God's word by aid of his spirit, that our eyes are open and we see the will of God. Why is that? Because God's law and his word come from him. They're not a part of the human system. So that too is why we don't just chuck it aside. Now that being said, the sections that we read communally, we can see that there, there are broad sweeps that capture all of these case laws that relate back to the Ten Commandments. So first notice this, take a look again, 21 and verse 12. Not one that we read, but plainly very famous line actually whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death nobody reading exodus 21 to 23 will ever walk away thinking god doesn't care about human life that is a great repetition in god's law that the most valuable thing is human life and if you tamper with that And this is against God's holy law. Even that part we read, you notice from verse 22 of chapter 21, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children, interesting word there, right? Children inside the womb. So that her children come out, but there's no harm. Presumably they're fine. And the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose and he shall pay them as the judge determines. But if there is harm, but if there's harm, it's life for life. It doesn't matter, men, women, social status. You harm another person, it's outside of God's boundary. Now, even as you read this, the part where the modern ear takes most offense is in this business of slaves. But you'll notice the language that God's using about slaves is to protect them. That slavery is a part of the fabric of the ancient world. I'll get to that in a moment. It doesn't make it right, but it's a part of the fabric. And God's law here, talking about slaves, is designed to protect them. So other cultures that had slavery, you say it's your property. You want to, you know, push them around and beat them up and even kill them. Well, there's no penalty for that. Why? They're your property. Not so in God's law. That you hurt your slave and you damage that life, there's going to be a penalty. Now, if I may, there's uh, a couple sidebars here because people see this and say, "Oh my goodness, I can't." You know, slavery. I mean, I, honestly, I get. I'm here even at 10:45 for this. Now 11:20. What's going on? Uh, slavery. a Couple caveats to think through. Probably a sermon in and of itself here, but a couple things to think about. Slavery in the ancient Near East and slavery in the Greco-Roman world is never race-based. It's never race-based. It's really a class that you're born into by virtue of being uh, in, in uh, whatever, you know, basically who your parents were. And you could actually sell yourself into slavery if that was better for your family. So notice that first, that slavery, we don't want to jump right to 18th century transatlantic slave trade, you know, the Americas. That's not the case. Rather, slavery is a part of the social fabric, had nothing to do with race. You could have a slave within your race group. Secondly, there are limits to slavery in the time of the ancient Near East. In fact, after six years, you were to release your slave, that it's not permanent, that it's not viewed as, you know, something that you do forever, but after six years, usually by the time of 30, the slave was released. Again, you say that doesn't make it right, but it does change our framework from what we're accustomed to thinking to. More interestingly, if you continue to read, which I hope you do this week, it appears from the laws that a lot of these slaves would actually, after they were freed, would decide to stay in the household of their former masters because they were happy there. Say this is nice. These are my people. I'm a part actually of the Roman or of the ancient near eastern household, later the greco-roman household. So slavery not race based, only 6 years time. And then a third point on this. This is very important. Think about this this week. When God's law regulates something, that doesn't mean he approves of it. When you read Paul in Galatians, he'll say like this, the law was added because of transgression. Let's face it, the reason why God in his grace had to give us laws is because we've rebelled against him. The reason he gave us laws is because we're corrupt and we set up corrupt institutions. And what God is saying, that even though this framework is all wrong is a consequence of sin, you shall not take life without a consequence. So have those things in mind when you read about biblical slavery. The point that it's mentioned here is to protect the slaves and to show us, to communicate to everybody who's the plain reading of the text that God values all human life. Now, how about this verse 24, or really from 23? But if there is harm, you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe, This is called, uh, usually a Latin phrase, the lex talionis, the law of retaliation. Very common in law codes. And you can read this and say, somebody opens and say, I told you all along, your God is so mean. I mean, look at how nasty this God is, You know how bloody, what a primitive law. I mean, wound for wound and stripe for stripe. You people believe this, you're going around whipping each other. Say, notice that what this law does is it puts a limit on punishment. That's what the lex talionis is about. It's putting a limit. It's saying life is valuable, but there's a limit. If somebody is whipped, you don't kill them. If somebody takes an eye, you don't uh, maim them and brutalize them beyond the eye. It's really putting a limit on what you're able to do. It's a constraint on the people from being more vicious than they'd otherwise like to be. Another thing, and not to be too technical, and I don't know about this. You think about this as you read this week. It's long-fascinated people with this eye-for-eye this eye and tooth-for-tooth tooth language. Who's to enact the punishments? God's Word doesn't say that. So some would say maybe it's less about the adjudication of these things literally, tooth-for-tooth, tooth. so you could imagine you punch out a tooth of, of uh, you know, another guy and then you go to the magistrate and the magistrate you know, winds up and knocks out your tooth. I mean, maybe that happened. It doesn't say. What, what I'm getting at is I, I, I think it's the principle God's people had to get the principle. Life matters. When you do bodily harm to God's creation, there's a consequence. That's outside of the boundaries he set up. So high regard for human life, we can't miss that in the covenant code, exactly as the Ten Commandments would would drive, uh, drive, drive home. So secondly, high regard for human life, how about the high regard for other people's things? We could say private property. And these days, the most valuable things were what? Uh, Livestock. That's why a lot of this is about oxen and donkeys. Say, other people, this is how they made their living. If you go around plundering it, that too is outside of God's boundaries. Have a look at 22 and verse one. If a man steals an ox or a sheep, that is, you plunder your neighbor, and you kill it or you sell it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. What are the particulars of that verse? Oxen and sheep. What's the principle? The principle is that if we take advantage of others, that what we must do to make it right is well beyond just repaying them once, but we must repay them even four and fivefold. God's people don't plunder the stuff of others. You'll notice in this law code uh, how many times the word restitution is made. It's a word for wholeness, right? If you do this to your neighbor, you then you, you make them whole through restitution. Again, we get God's parameters. And I'll say one other thing about this, not to bore you. Um, If you look at other ancient Near Eastern law codes, there's a couple of them that are very famous, you know about, most famous is called the Code of Hammurabi. So you ever, uh, we can ever travel again, go back to Paris and you're going around the Louvre, you can see the Code of Hammurabi in the Louvre. Very famous archeological discovery of 282 laws. In the Code of Hammurabi, the punishment for theft is death other ancient near eastern law codes you steal something you die so now you take the law code of moses and what all of a sudden happens moses that is the god of the bible is more lenient he's more gracious it's the exact opposite of the way our contemporaries think say nasty god you know eye for eye can you believe he's doing this what a terror in the context we see god's gracious And in doing this, what he's saying is the penalties we reserve, the most severe penalties involve human life, and property is secondary. Outside the people of God, property's the most important thing. You see what God's doing. People matter more than property. Property still matters. You tamper with other people's stuff. You pay restitution. That's what it means to be a part of the people of God. Thirdly, look at that section starting from 22 and verse 16. We picked it up at verse 21. But this section is about caring uh, caring about those who are in a tough position in our assembly or in our midst. Say these days, even in my ESV, you say you've got a, a kind of lightning rod issue there of social justice. And what it means when you actually look at what the, the Bible says, it means being tender hearted, tender hearted towards those who are around us. You know, that's why I love we have a ministry here called um, the International Student Ministry. It's a fabulous ministry. I really should talk about it more, but you don't realize sometimes, as growing up in the Midwest, how a lot of international students come from all over the world to study at CSU and CASE and Lorraine Community College, and the world's coming to us. And the International Student Ministry of Providence Church does a great job of reaching out to them. They'll meet them at the airport. They'll take them in. They'll care for them. You say, I think that's pretty close to how God's people are supposed to behave. That there are outsiders coming and we're in a position to take care of them. We should be tender-hearted, and love them and care for them. Say, so if I look just a bit further, say so take a look at some of the laws uh, there and from 23, if I could talk a little bit about usury. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him and you shall not exact interest from him. Is this a law against bankers? Say, if a few of you, if you want to leave now, you say, there you're the anti banking law, you can't use interest. Say, no, that's not what this is about. This is saying that if there's somebody in the midst of the assembly who's in a tough spot, the people of God don't see that as an opportunity to take advantage of them, but rather we act in a way that's tender hearted and considering and caring towards them. It's about people, loving people. So we have seen there's a high value on human life in God's law. There's a high value on looking out for other people's property and paying restitution when we steal things or when we plunder them. That we're to care for the dispossessed and be, have a lookout for those who are in a tough place. And lastly, from verse 23 and uh, chapter 23 and verse 10, that we're to remember that God in the midst of this code starts to set out festivals and things the people of God do to remember who they are. Not only do you have a reference to the Sabbath, 23 and verse 12, six days you shall do work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. We've already studied that. We're to have a regular cadence where we remember who God is, who we are. He goes on to institute three festivals, the Passover festival, that is the one of unleavened bread, the feast of weeks and the feast of booths. They're marking the start of the harvest and the end of harvest. The point of these is for God to he recognizes we're forgetful people. I go through my week and I forget who I am, that I'm a creature of God, that I've been bought back by his grace, that he's a redeemer. And so God in his kindness says that there are festivals that I've set up to make sure you remember who I am and who you are. Comes right into the church. That each Sunday we gather, not in a way that's formulaic, but we gather for such purposes to say we're the people of God we're to be different by what he's done in the midst of us oh yeah that we we are creatures and we're fallen and he's great and we need him and we need his grace and we recognize jesus as king that there are inbuilt reminders for us to remind us who god is and who we are in a few minutes we're going to celebrate the lord's supper it's a very good tangible reminder of this kind of thing If I can summarize, maybe you just the last few minutes, you just said, oh my goodness, uh, that's a lot there. Let me just give you, if you remember nothing else, say God gives us this law. And what's abundantly clear in Exodus 21 to 23 is that God is the Lord of life, my things, and my time. God is the Lord over life, all the stuff that he's entrusted to me, and the time that he's given me. That's what the covenant code's about. He's the author of life. He's entrusted us with all the things that he has, steward them to his care, to his glory, and to remember him and live a life that models that. So God's law reveals his will. It's who he is. Can any of us say, what does God want? How does he want us to treat one another? How does he want us to focus on him? Say, we're without excuse because he's made it so very plain. God's law is him speaking to his people. Then secondly, and a byproduct of that then, God's law shapes his people. That we're to look like our Heavenly Father. You see, we all are good at, you know, I, I marvel, women are much better at this than men, I find, but you see a little tiny baby, and he's a brand new infant, and the, the woman will say, oh, he looks exactly like so-and-so. I never see it. I'm <laughs> you know, with the baby there. But the, you get the point, is that we're to look like those who gave birth to us. So God's law shapes his people. Now, if I may, a little sidebar here, because I get often frustrated. Sometimes I'll be in a discussion with other, you know, kind of, other Christians, people under that umbrella, and they'll argue that the church gives rise to the Bible. They say it's the church that authenticates God's word. Without the church, you wouldn't have God's word, and I'm thinking, oh dear. God's people have never created God's word. God's word always creates his people. That from the start of the whole story of the world, God speaks and it was so. God speaks and matter comes God speaks. He speaks the church into existence He spoke Israel into existence. God speaks and as a result of Him speaking and quickening our hearts and giving us new life and opening our eyes to Jesus, He makes His people and that's what shapes us. And we're to take on the hue, the very attributes of the God of all. I think at this point there's an objection and you're reading this law and you're saying, well yeah, this whole business about the The principles and the particulars how do we know that's the case i mean it sounds a little bit kind of subjective the way you're doing this i mean i don't i don't know i mean uh, how can we be sure the best interpreter of the bible is jesus and what Jesus does, the history of the Jews is filled with those who take a literal interpretation of the Old Testament. Say, so if you read your New Testament, this is exactly what's going on. If you try to make it uh, literal to the law, it kind of all turns to mush because what you have happen is you need to make laws to protect laws to protect laws. If you don't believe me, you can ask to borrow one of the many volumes of the Babylonian Talmud in my office. The Babylonian Talmud is the oral tradition of the Jews. It's exactly what it is. They say they see the law. In order not to break the law, we need another law in order to not break Break that law we need another law and what you have happened then is many 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 volumes of following the law to the letter say is that what we're supposed to do so listen to jesus as he goes up to a group like this in matthew 22 from verse 34 but when the pharisees heard that he had silenced the sadducees they gathered together and one of them a lawyer So you see, this lawyer would have known the covenant code of Exodus 21 to 23 very well. And the lawyer asked a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? So in other words, which one of these uh, little items about the oxen and the pits and the slaves, which one of those is the most important thing to follow? But Jesus said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. It's a profound statement from Jesus. The law in Exodus 21 to 23 was given to make it abundantly clear to the people of God that were to be devoted to him and to love him and to love one another like we love ourselves. You remember back to the Ten Commandments. What were they? The first four commandments are about loving God, and the second six are about loving our neighbors. All this covenant code of 21 to 23, you'll notice what it is. It's God doubling down on the Ten Commandments. Notice 20 in verse 23 that this is, again, a forbiddance of idolatry. 23 in verse 1 and also in verse 7, there's a forbiddance of false witness. We've seen that in the Ten Commandments. How about respecting your parents? You think God takes that seriously? Have a read of Exodus 21, 15, and 17. In other words, God's given us the timeless truths to shape his people, and then in the case laws, he's doubling down to say it's got to be clear to all of us we're to be sold out and devoted to God with ourselves, our property, and our time, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. That's the point of the law, that it shapes us to get that through our head, that we can't do it ourselves. We must be fully dependent on God, and that's the point. I would say to you also, as you read this, you notice this law put, uh, guides us towards self-restraint. A lesson we very much need these days is the people of God We've already talked about usury, but how about what is right after that in 22 and verse 26? Listen to this. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it shall be his cloak, his only cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear it, for I am compassionate. It's a striking line from God. A merciful and kind God. You take a cloak from somebody in a pledge, you don't have to give it back. That's yours. That's part of the pledge. I'm not giving my cloak back. What's God saying? Don't hold a needy person under the letter of the law, but be kind and gracious to them because that's his only cloak and he's gonna be too cold at night. That the heart of God's law is compassionate and kind and would guide us towards self-restraint, towards thinking of others. Say, how does that apply in your own life? You say, these principles of your law. I can think of a lot of examples. Say, how we speak to one another uh, on social media, the great disaster that we're in as a result of that. If you caught the article in The Atlantic this week called After Babel, I say, boy, do we have a real mess there about being at each other's throats. Is there a way of operating in that arena uh, for the Christian? say, I hope so. Because God's law wants to show us to love one another to be different, to be kind, to be gentle, and so forth. So firstly, we saw that God's law reveals his will. It's about his character. We're without excuse. He's spoken very plainly. There are timeless truths that we're to get through our heads. Secondly, God's law will shape us. It will mold us, and over time, as we mature, we'll bear out his image and be able to uh, do as he he pleases as a church. Finally, and a bit more, uh, I guess, tenderly, god's law shows us ourselves it'll show us our need see god's law functions as a kind of mirror you know before i was a christian right you're plowing through life you're doing your own thing say i think there's a god out there i can think of him any way that i want can do what pleases me and all of a sudden somebody tells you that there's a god on high and that he's spoken and you get a copy of his word and you open up the Word, and you're starting to read things like, well, wait a second, I'm to love God with all that I am? All of my speech? All of my things? My money? My thoughts? Those all belong to God? Wait a second here. I'm not such a great guy. I'm actually in trouble. And it says here that I'm supposed to love my neighbor is myself, and I'm not supposed to take advantage of other people, and that I'm supposed to care for other, others even as much as I care for myself. Wait a second here, I'm not a good guy. I'm on the wrong side of what God wants. And that way, God's law functions as a mirror. And listen to the way Paul speaks again, a great interpreter of this. This is Romans chapter 3 and verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. That is, those who are under the authority of God. We've opened it up this morning, right? Everybody here, in a way, you say we've, again, no excuse. We've seen what God law, law says. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. What does that mean, you think, where Paul says, when you see the law of God, your mouth is stopped? See, I think I know what that means. Before God shows me who I am, I'm in the business of telling all of you what a great guy I am. Hey, look at me. Look at what I've accomplished. I'm pretty good. I'm better than 99% of people who walk the globe. You see what that guy did over there? At least I didn't do that. I'm a pretty good chap. But then I read God's law. And what? My mouth ought to stop. I'm part of the problem. And I'm accountable, not to all of you, Though I am, I'm accountable to the God on high. That's what it says. You read the law of God, and we stand exposed. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, right? Of only I keep doing more and more, and there's more Austin in the equation, then I'm gonna claw my way up and be a great churchman to all of you, and a great husband to Mallory, and a great son to my parents, and a great dad to my boys. I just need more of me in there. No, not gonna do it that way. I stand condemned just condemned because of the knowledge of my own sinfulness, quite frankly, to love myself more than God or you. So the law does this difficult work but necessary work to show me and you who I really am. And that leaves me with a big problem. There's a God on high. He's plainly revealed his will and his law and his word, that it's very clear The way he wants his people to be, I'm aware of what it is, and yet I fall short. Is there anyone who can help me out of the mess I'm in? Is there anyone who's been perfectly obedient to the law? If only there was someone who could, yeah, I know exactly all the things that you've done, all the thoughts that you've thought, and yet he would take me in. And make me his own and restore me to this God of the universe. Is there anyone like that? It would say, all who are weak and heavy laden, come to me and I'll give you rest. You say, well, we know the answer, right? God, put forth Jesus knowing that we're law violators and that we can come to Jesus and be cleansed by his sin, by his blood for our sins and restored to him. And that's why every Christian should really be a great joyous person because there's great news, there's great news that this God of the universe who has standards, who will hold his people accountable, has made a way through his grace in Jesus. Oh, church family, I know those of you who are members, that you recognize this, you've surrendered to Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and I hope no matter what's happening in your life, and there's a lot right now, there's a lot that's turning to mush right now, I get it, there's a lot of heaviness out there, but I hope at the end of the day, your head rests very well on the, uh, really soundly on the pillow, because Jesus is your anchor. The completed work of Jesus has made a way for you. And those of you here today, there are always a few. You're a bit on the fringe. And even today, you thought, you know, Hebrew slaves and sojourners, and I, I hope if nothing else, you see Jesus. Jesus is different. Where every other person you know is blowing it, Jesus was faithful, and he made a way. And the sacrifice is for you and for me, and that you can surrender to him, and he'll give you a new heart, give you the gift of repentance and faith. You've been whole with the creator, and on your way to serving him. So friends, the point of this law again, one more time, read it this week, God's law reveals his will, We're without excuse, this is what God wants. What we see is a pretty nice picture of loving him and loving others, that ideally, as we obey his law and come under it, that he's going to shape his people to being different from the rest of the world, that we hold our, we conduct our affairs in a different way, and that we take on an attractiveness not of our own, but of Jesus himself. And lastly, the law shows us our need and flings us back to Jesus to show us that we need God's grace each and every day. We sang that song, I need you, Lord. I need you every hour. May that be true for the saints that we need him. So I'll pray, and as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper, in so doing. Gracious Father, the last thing we need is a church that is full of flattery. We're doing great. We're self-sufficient, self-righteous. Your law is outdated and weird. Lord, may it not be so. May we read it for what it is, that we would be devoted to you in our time, our talents, and treasures that we would truly be a loving community, that we would think more highly of others than we do of ourselves. And Lord, as soon as we see that, we say, yes, we need, we need Jesus' help. And Lord, you would continually mold us into more mature followers, that yes, that we would be converted, but also then sanctified and matured into full adulthood in you. And that Lord, somehow, that you would use this church in avon this small little local expression of your body somehow to get a few more souls into glory that there'd be a few more lost people who would be found and that eternity would be changed as a result of what you've done in the midst of us and lord may we not think of that as some kind of modest contribution but rather that it would be pleasing to you which is the most important thing again an eternal impact so lord have your way in us Open our eyes to see you, for Jesus' sake. Amen.